Welcome to episode 101 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. This is Deep Sky Observing in Origa, Gemini, and Cancer. I'm Chris. Joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky. And this podcast is for everyone else who likes going out and looking up into the stars and constellations. Shane, you suggested doing Origa, Gemini, and Cancer for some of our constellations this month. And just so happened. It was funny you said that because I had just put cancer together to present in my class and I had Origa and Gemini on deck. So I was kind of good to go with this. <laughs> oh, well, that works out good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's pretty good. But uh, maybe we should first talk about uh, maybe maybe why we chose these and where they are in the sky. So I think previously we had uh, spoken about like the winter uh, hexagon a little bit. And we talked about, um, Orion and Taurus and, and Perseus, uh, as constellations. I'm not sure. Did we talk about Canis major too? I feel like we may. Yeah. Yeah. I think we did Canis major, yeah. uh, Canis minor. We, we like the, the, the previous deep sky episodes, we've done about three constellations, but this yeah. last one, we did a whole bunch because, uh, yeah. well, some of them are just small and kind of in that area of the sky. So it worked out. Yeah, so so those constellations as as the seasons progress are moving on to to the west. And though those ones aren't aren't quite setting yet, they're definitely uh, coming down uh, a little bit in the sky. Still observable, so people can go back and listen to that podcast, and you know, and they'll still find it find it useful. Um, but now uh, Auriga is coming down a little bit when we were doing those episodes. Uh, Auriga was in the zenith, which is the point directly overhead. And it's actually really hard to observe straight up uh, unless you're lying on your um, back on a field somewhere, which I've done before. Um, and that, that, that's something you just maybe don't want to do as much in, in the spring when everything's melting like it is here. And then um, Gemini is just southeast of Auriga and it's getting up towards the zenith, but it doesn't quite get right through the zenith like, uh, like Auriga does, at least for us. Um, and then cancer is, is nice and high and getting up to its, to its highest point. And, uh, anyway, a good opportunity to do these while, while they're very high and well-placed and then kind of as, as people may be listening to them and, and planning to do some observing here, either this week or, or the next new moon period, which, which kind of starts in about, uh, uh, two or two and a so weeks from now, um, they'll, they'll be really well-placed, uh, at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... Um, and there's lots to see, you know, especially uh, in Riga, uh, Gemini, you know, there's, there's an awful lot of stuff up there. Yeah. So basically to find them, you just find Orion and then you go uh, straight up and that will land you in Riga, And then you can kind of just sort of follow um, the bright stars down to the left and that's Gemini. And then Cancer's uh, a little bit fainter, but, but I'll let people know um, one of the things that, that I use in, in my class anyway, and uh and I get these printed out and I recommend them to, to everybody are the maps from skymaps.com. Uh, I have no affiliation with them whatsoever, but I love what they do. They do great work. Um, I think they sell books and stuff on their website. I did. I think I bought one of their books at one point in time. It was a good transaction. But like I said, other than that, I have no affiliation with them. I, I just certainly appreciate the charts um, that they put out. And what they do on their charts, which is so useful, is um, they, they mark in all the major constellations and, uh, as well as most of the minor ones. And, uh, it's pretty easy to read. Um, they really use a lot of real estate on the page. So, so what you do is you, you would print this off. That's what I would recommend anyway, make yourself a little red flashlight, take it out under the stars. Um, and, and what they give you night to night or pretty much every night of the, of the month. And they put these out at the start of every month is they tell you where, where the moon and planets are. And pretty much what they do is they guide you through the month uh, using the moon to point out different things. And this is absolutely the, the perfect way for newcomers to astronomy uh, to learn the night sky in, in the way that they've done it. I just think it's, it's really excellent uh, the way that they, they've done this. I don't know how much you've used these, Shane, but uh, I certainly get, get my uh, uh, newcomers to astronomy uh, caught up on, on how to use these charts from skymaps.com. Um, yeah, they, they are nice charts, but to be uh, perfectly honest, I, I don't usually use them. Um, 
I uh, I just you're did a little more safari. Yeah, and, you're, you're uh, a little more experienced. So yeah. Yeah, and I and I have like way too many uh, Atlas books that I can use too. So, sure. so those are those so, usually accompany me in the field. Maybe from there, what what would be like the next level of chart that you would recommend for people to use? Well, I'm a, like we've mentioned many times before, I'm a big fan of the Spocket Pocket Sky Atlas uh, by uh, Sky and Telescope. It's, uh, it's really good. Um, Nightwatch is a pretty good beginner's one. Um, that's what I recommend. You know, now that um, some of these publishers are out of business, it's, it's becoming a smaller and smaller kind of Atlas mm-hmm. field. Uh, there used to be another one for free called the Tri Atlas, which was yeah, I have a actually, copy of that. Yeah, yeah I, I don't actually think it's available anymore. I, I think they shut down the website, but there were three versions of this Tri Atlas, um, and basically, like one was like a very basic atlas, and then the two subsequent ones just showed fainter and fainter stuff. So depending, mm-hmm. like the first one, I think was more kind of small telescopes and binoculars. The middle one was for the majority of people, you know, that would have, um, you know, a kind of your general amateur telescope. And then the last one was, you know, for the big aperture people that are probably 20 inches and above. Um, and they were really good. Like they were well uh, designed, well plotted, easy to read. But like I say, I don't know if you can find them anymore. Maybe somebody has them mirrored on cloudy nights for, hmm. for download. I'm not sure, but they were, they were pretty good as well. Yeah. I did print them all off and have them in a binder downstairs. They're yeah, all right. I, I have the Triatlas B series. So the middle one, again, that's applicable to kind of the majority of amateurs. I do have that one printed off. Um, and yeah, I've used it on occasion. Um, it's, it's wonderful. But I think, I think the, the recommendation here though, is like for, for uh, the most basic uh, learn in the night sky. I think that um, like these charts are a good place to get started. Make a red flashlight though. Um, just get a cheap, light and then just get your red duct tape or red cellophane and, and make a, uh, at least two or three layers over it. So you dim it down pretty good so that the, uh, your eye doesn't, uh, doesn't get uh, impacted by white light because that's bad. Um, and then next from there is to buy a copy of Terrence Dickinson's Nightwatch because it has beautiful charts and, uh, and a great instruction set on learning to read um, more, more detailed star charts. And I think that is absolutely the next step. And then from there, it's the uh, pocket Atlas for sure. Um, yeah. And, and from that point there's, there's sky Atlas 2000. And, uh, then I, I think probably the best field Atlas now, um, you know, at least in my, in my limited opinion is, uh, is the, uh, oculum press interstellarum, um, yeah. by, uh, uh, Stoyan, Ronald Stoyan. Um, is, is the, I think one of the authors of it. So, uh, that's, that's kind of what I'm, I'm using in the field, but there's like no perfect Atlas. And at least, uh, in my opinion, Shane, I try to steer people away from using the softwares under the nighttime sky because, um, the screens are, are just too bright, even when dimmed down all the way. And in fact, I, I found like with, uh, with my tablets and, and other devices that when I have tried to use those in the field, um, the eye just doesn't work the same as it does like in your home and you have to dim them down so much that uh, you're, you're like trying to press your nose against the screen in order to read them. At least that's what happened to me anyway. Yeah. I'm not a fan of screens at the telescope. Um, if I'm in the city, you know, under light polluted urban skies, I'm not too concerned about preserving my night vision because mm-hmm. I really don't achieve it. Mm-hmm. But if I'm, if I'm at a dark site, um, I don't use them and you know, if you're, if you are using a screen at a dark site, um, and you're around other astronomers, just be cognizant that they may not want to see that screen either. So, you know, try to shield it from the other observers because, uh, um, they can be bright and they can ruin night vision. Yeah. And I, I, I never forget the, you know, it always seems like there's, there's somebody in every club that shows up and they, they set up like a, an LCD panel or something and like, and then it's like pointed at everybody they think it's going to like look cool or something. And then uh, they're like the least popular person. Um, I've, I've met a few of those people and yeah, you just, you just got to be, you know, aware that not everybody's going to be as excited about seeing um, 
a, a giant uh, computer screen at, at night as uh, as you might be, um, and I'm certainly not not excited to see a computer screen at night, even if it's just uh, a tablet or a cell phone. Yeah, less less light is better. Uh, red light is better than white, but no light is best. Yeah, no light is is best. You know what? It's a funny thing. I mean, you know, this this has come into play in uh, in in the training I I do with. Um, with uh, law enforcement, and that is that uh, I, I have to give a warning now about uh, device usage at night um, as part of the training that I deliver, because oh, wow. just for for this reason alone. And that's that the the screens are too bright and they're getting brighter, and so uh, we we have to make sure that uh, that people are people are aware of that and uh, and the impacts it can have um, on your eye at night, right? Mm-hmm. So. So whether you're you're um, you know a, a first responder of some sort or whether you're an amateur astronomer of some sort, um, yeah, using using uh, brightly lit screens at night can definitely um, impact uh, your vision, um, to say the least. All right, so let's uh, let's start off with uh, Ariga the charioteer. Um, so. I don't, I don't really think it looks like a chariot. Although you know the last, it's been a long time since I was to the chariot races. I don't know about you, but well, I've never never been to one, so I'll defer to you as the expert on chariot yeah. races. So I, I've been to the Colosseum in Rome, and okay. uh, you know, there's no floor there anymore. So you couldn't you couldn't really run a chariot race there any any longer. It's a little that that's a little bit disappointing. Other than that, it's cool. Well, well worth well worth going to to Rome once uh, once people are able to to travel more, but. Um, Origa is, I find it's this strange, almost, is that like a Pentagon type shape? Am I sharing? Maybe I should share my screen with you instead of um, just pre- pretending okay. like you can see it. Sure. <laughs> then you can kind of see where, where I'm at. You can always just exit out and keep it, keep it small, but uh, yeah. at least. Yeah. And at least I'll, oh, sorry, Chris, to interrupt, but I'll post, no. I'll post this to the website as well. So if anybody is interested in what we're referring to as we're talking, you'll be able to see it there. Yeah, sure. And uh, let's see. So I find it's, is that like a pentagon pattern? Like kind of sort of the, uh, the, the main shape yeah, is. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Kind of like a pentagon. Yep. Um, I actually find it quite uh, unmistakable. It's quite, it's, it's quite noted, you know, once you, once you learn the night sky a little bit. So um, before you, you become aware that there's different constellations like the main ones, or the main patterns, like the Big Dipper and Orion and Cassiopeia, those ones that kind of look like what they sound like or are really popular or like the, the teapot of Sagittarius or Scorpion, things like Origa, which kind of don't really look much like, like anything. Um, for some reason, I find that pattern of stars was, uh, was one of the ones that, that I was able to, to learn very quickly because, um, it's got these bright stars and uh, you, so you can see them quite well. And then it also has uh, quite a few little deep sky objects in here that are, that are well worth looking at. But the, the main star is called Capella. And here from the Northern hemisphere, and especially where we live, you can see it any clear night of the year. It, it never goes below the horizon. eh? Yeah. 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 It's uh, it's always there. Yeah. So that's, that's good. I think it gets pretty low for, for a period of time in the, in the evening. Um, but um, to find a rig, like right now it's just past the Zenith, but if you are like looking on a, on a star chart, one of the easy ways to find it is to find the constellation of uh, Taurus the bull. And there's the Heidi star cluster, which is sort of uh, marked by Aldebaran, which is this bright orange star. But if you, if you sort of extend those, those horns of, of the bull out, eventually the, the top or the northernmost horn terminates at, uh, at Beta Origae. Um, I don't know the name of that star, but anyway, that, that's sort of opposite of, of Capella. And Capella is so bright and being so close to the zenith right now. If you look up and just to the west or just to the right of zenith, um, at least from the northern hemisphere, then, then you're going you're gonna to see Capella is, uh, is pretty high overhead. My, my advancing is not working properly. There we go. So there's, there's quite a few things to see in Origa or Origa. And I guess maybe we'll start with these um, open clusters. And I'm, I'm not gonna go into too much to the history 
um, of these open clusters, or, or maybe I will a little bit, but there's these three open clusters, M36, M37, and M38. And they're all kind of like equally spaced, like three or four degrees apart or whatever in the sky, mm -hmm. or maybe not even quite that. Um, and it, it, as such, and because they're very bright, they're into like that uh, sort of uh, sixth or seventh magnitude uh, range. They're super easy to see um, with binoculars. So for me anyway, Shane, um, kind of once I, I had uh, ticked off like the major um, SA objects, like the first couple of years I was observing, you know, and had looked at like the lagoon in summer and M42 in the winter and those kind of ones. Um, these ones in Auriga quickly became favorites because they're really easy to find. They're kind of right uh, sort of in the south central area of, of the constellation. And, uh, you know, they're quite bright. Like I, I can take my binoculars out here in the city and I can see them quite easily. I don't know what your experience has been with them. Yeah, like they're they're very easy clusters to find. And um, it's kind of a nice little tour to start, you know, at, at the, I usually start at M37 and kind of work my way through them, but um, you know, they're, they're quite bright and, and a good size and they look out like if you put anything more than binoculars on them, they're really nice clusters to observe. Mm -hmm. there, there's also some uh, pretty interesting deep, like deep sky objects. So maybe I should say this first of all, is that um, what makes Orega a great place to go deep sky observing is that the Milky Way pretty much cuts right through the middle of the main constellation. Um, and it's sort of surprising that this constellation isn't more well known. Um, I think it's just because these star patterns don't really make um, much sense. Like when you look up, like it doesn't really look like a chariot. In fact, it doesn't really look like anything. But once you take your binoculars and scan around there, and uh, you start seeing all these clusters, and there's other stuff we'll talk about here in a second. Um, it's a pretty amazing uh, constellation. Now, one of the other things uh, that I really like to look at, and I wrote about this when I when I wrote my very first um, constellation article or feature constellation article for the uh, for the handbook of, uh, of the Observer's Handbook of the RASC. I guess this was about seven or eight years ago now. Uh, I wrote about Auriga and I wrote about um, a set of stars uh, that are near M38 and they're just on the uh, western side of the constellation, I think. And those are sort of punctuated. Uh, this feature is punctuated by stars 19, 16 and 14 Auriga. And they form this little pattern, um, which is sort of unpopularly known as the leaping minnow. Um, kind of looks like this, this little creature of, of stars. And uh, it's just like a little beautiful um, pattern to see. Did you ever look at that, Shane? Um, I, I think I have. And when I looked at it, I, I didn't, like I, I was unaware of the Leaping Minnow uh, reference. And yeah. then uh, I think since I've heard that, I, I've not gone back. So I probably should go back to, to see yeah. if I can identify that. Yeah, it would look great in your, in your 12 by 36 is I'm certain. Uh, and then just sort of uh, above or north of, of this, this pattern is a really bright emission nebula called IC405, which I think is, is otherwise known as the Flaming Star or the Auriga, uh Nebula, which, and I think the star had, had escaped from, if I'm recalling correctly, I think Orion at one point in time. Um, and that's kind of, you know, a, a very bright uh, emission zone. But there's also all kinds of other sort of clusters and nebula in the area. There's um, NGC 1857, just to the uh, east of, of this region. And then right, right back in that region around the Leaping Minnow is NGC 1893 and IC410 and IC417, all kinds of other uh, index catalog and new general catalog uh, objects are, are in there. So uh, just to kind of go back to Capella for a second, Capella is associated with the mythological uh, she-goat, Amalthea. Now, Amalthea, isn't that the fifth moon of uh, Jupiter as well that was discovered by E.E. E. Barnard in like the uh, 1890s from Lick? Well, I, I don't know all of that history, but yeah, I believe it is a moon of Jupiter. Yeah. And uh, anyway, um, Capella forms this, this little asterism, which, uh, which is formed uh, alongside a, a set of stars, Epsilon Origae, Zeta Origae, and Eta Origae. And the, the latter of these um, are known as the kids, but really I kind of see it as, as all three of those stars. Now, 
you're just hearing me say like these names going to seem like an abstraction, but, but this is how this, this is the practical part of it is. So you go out and you don't need to start training and find this. You go out, you find a rig up and then, uh, you know, that's like your main constellation. Then you find Capella, which is the bright star in that constellation. And then just sort of above and maybe a little bit to the right, at least right now, or, or maybe it's below and to the right a little bit as, as it's coming around and, and starting to set these evenings is a set of these three stars that forms like this unmistakable triangle. And I say like, these are, these are the kids, right? This is, this is the region of, uh, of the little goats, which are shown on, on the back of, of the charioteer or the back of the, the chariot. And uh, anyway, just, just sort of a neat little, little pattern there. So Capella is uh, is the brightest star in Auriga. It's actually one of the brightest stars in the in the sky. It's um, it's the sixth brightest star in the sky and uh, the third brightest that we can see from the northern hemisphere after um, Auriga. And uh, uh, we we have uh, Arcturus is a little brighter in Vega in in the northern celestial sphere. Then of course in the southern celestial sphere we have things like Cirrus and other things like that. Um, and it's it's really bright. And uh, just kind of in, in comparison, there's, there's some other um, companions uh, to this star, but they aren't visible as far as I know. I think it's, it's pretty hard, hard to see uh, the companions to, uh, to Capella. So just to talk a little bit about the, the three clusters that are there, and, and it's sort of funny how they're numbered. Um, because when, when I'm looking at them, like you say, you start in the south and the, the most southerly one is M37. Uh, the most northerly one is M38, and then M36 is kind of right in between, maybe a little bit close to M38. So it's kind of funny um, that they're not really in any sort of sort of order as uh, as Permessi just kind of dropping them into his uh, his catalog as as he numbered them. Yeah, yeah, it does seem kind of suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a little funny. Um, now, a lot of the time, these these would be credited to to other other observers. But um, one observer that uh, I've become particularly fascinated with observed in the early 1600s. So uh, there was this work that was published uh, around, I think it was uh, in, the, in the late 1640s or early 1650s um, by, uh, by an observer named Hodierna who lived on Sicily. And uh, he actually drew some charts. Um, he drew a lot of charts which uh, really should, uh, should give him um, original discovery for a lot of objects, including um, these, these three objects. Now, he didn't like label them Hodier, you know, whatever, one, two, and three, or whatever they would have been in his, his list. He just kind of said, okay, well, there's bright Milky Way there. I'm going to point my telescope there. And oh, lo and behold, I actually see some things there. And, and then he did some, he did some sketching. Um, I've got a chart up here for you, Shane. As you can clearly see in this chart, that's a bit of a joke. Uh, it, it's kind of difficult to see, but uh, but according to the, to the folks that had the original copies, it's uh, a little bit more apparent than it's in this chart. All right. So, do you have anything to add for Origa, uh, the charioteer or the chariot, and uh, in the terms of uh, double stars or anything interesting of, of that nature? Yeah. Yeah. So of the double stars here, um, a challenge, well, actually the separation is pretty great, but so I think it's Epsilon Origae. Um, so the primary is magnitude three, the companion is magnitude 14. So if there's some big aperture people out there or, or, you know, getting into the larger aperture zone, uh, you might be able to pick up the companion. The separation is quite large. It's 29.8 arc seconds. So mm. that's that's considerable. It, you know, that part of it won't make it difficult. It's really just having the ability to detect magnitude 14. Uh, what else do we have here? Uh, there's Riga 14. Um, so for, 14 Riga is the uh, star designation or the group designation. Um, primary is magnitude five, secondary is nine, uh, and the separation is 9.75 arc seconds. So that's getting a little closer. I think that's similar to the separation of Sirius AB as well as, uh, Regal in Orion, um, just to give people some context as to how close these two would be. Uh, and then the last one here that I'll mention is 16 Arige. uh, 
primary magnitude 4.8, secondary is 10.6. So now you're getting into, um, you know, a pretty big discrepancy and the separation here is tight. It's 4.14 arc seconds. So this would be the most challenging one, I think, to uh, split uh, because it's close. Uh, like the two, uh, two stars are quite close. And the fact that there's such a magnitude difference um, would make that one kind of challenging. So anybody that, you know, wants to test their optics and their eyes, uh, 16 Arige is it. Good. Anything else? That's it for that one. All right. Let's move on to Gemini, the twins. Yes. Very Just, distinguishable uh, with, with the two twins, Castor and, and Polex. Yeah. And do you have a copy? So a really great book for finding um, constellations and kind of working through them uh, is, is H.A. Ray's The Stars. I think it's called The Stars, A New Way to See Them, if I'm recalling correctly. Do you have a copy of that book? No, no, I don't. So it's, it's kind of a neat book. It seems like it's a little bit antiquated. Um, it it's, was written in the 50s. I think it was published in 57 or something like that. But it's, it's remained in publication. I have a copy. It kind of the, the copy that I have kind of feels like those workbooks you had maybe, or at least I had in, uh, in like my grade uh, primary to grade three uh, grade school education. It has sort of that, that kind of real rough kind of paper feel to it. And um, anyway, but, but he does this great job. And of course, H.A. Ray, I should say this, you know who H.A. Ray is, right? No, no. I don't, oh, so H.A. Ray wrote the Curious George books famous sort of uh, children's oh, author. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So he was, he was also an amateur astronomer. Many people don't realize that. And uh, any, anyhow, um, because um, at the time in the, in the mid 20th century, um, like, like people were struggling to see the constellations just as they, as they do today. And he, he decided that he would kind of try to sort of revamp them to make them a little bit easier to, to recognize. Now, mm -hmm. Now his patterns haven't been completely absorbed um, by the astronomical community and and sort of the the lines, but uh, but they greatly influenced it. So prior to to his involvement, um, the patterns were much more esoteric or, or difficult to understand unless you were really into into drawing patterns in the sky. And then after um, H. J. Ray, they they become a little bit more um, easy to to digest by. Uh, by regular people like us, you know, Yeah. anyway. Yeah, for sure. So he's the one that actually kind of drew them out to look more like two, um, they kind of look like two friends or, 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 or siblings sort of holding hands. And they, they sort of very closely, these, these patterns of stars uh, mirror one another more or less. So if you look up the pattern for Gemini, um, there's sort of these, these two sets each marked by a bright head. And then, um, you know, they have this sort of this, this, you know, stick pattern. And it's pretty unmistakable, kind of like once yes. it's one of those constellations where if, if you don't trace out the stars, you'll never see the pattern. But as soon as you see the pattern, that's all you see when you, you look at this area of sky. It's really cool like that. Yeah. And, and what I love about it is, uh, you know, not every constellation represents, you know, what like um, uh, Canis Minor, you know, is a great <laughs> is a great example of, you know, it's supposed to be a, a you know, small dog. Well, I don't see that in Canis Minor. But, you know, in Gemini and, you know, a few other constellations, it's just, it's very apparent once you see the star pattern with the lines, like you said, like once you see it once, you'll always see it when you look up at the sky. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and also there's, there's an interesting thing. You'll, you'll notice this on, I'm, I put in the uh, IAU slash Sky and Telescope uh, charts there. Um, you can see alpha and beta. So the alpha star is Castor and the beta star is Pollux. Mm. And if, if you look closely, Shane, you'll notice something about those two stars. And that is that Castor is actually fainter than Pollux. So this is um, one of those instances where the alpha star is fainter than the beta star. So why is that? Was it just uh, like they didn't, they didn't quite understand the brightness when Elf, when El, when Castor was designated the Alpha. No, no, it's because Johann Baer, when he was actually applying, and and I, I think and then Flamstein thereafter, when they were actually starting to apply these uh, Greek letters, mm -hmm. 
to the uh, stars and the constellations, they had they had rules that they were working with, and and the rule, although sort of loosely followed, uh, the dictum was that the brightest star would be the alpha star, and the second yeah. brightest would be beta, and so on and so forth. There was actually a rule about um, where it was in the constellation. So. Um, I think here, because the, the brightness is close, like they're both sort of within that same magnitude, um, but because it's further north and like it's sort of like a positional thing and it comes before it in right ascension just by a smidge, then because of, of that sort of subset of rules, it uh, caster becomes the alpha star. That, that's my understanding. Anyway, they, the, the rules that they were using were... Um, you know, uh, early, <laughs> you know, but yeah. it's stuck. Right. And it's, it's kind of like one of those funny things that, that was never corrected. And this is one of those things that can make learning amateur astronomy, um, a little bit of a headache because one of the first rules that people learn is, well, the alpha star is the brightest star. So yeah. then they're looking up, but which star is Castor and Pollux? Well, I know Castor is the brightest one. So it must be the one on the bottom, but no, that's not true. The, the hmm. brightest star is Pollux. The second brightest star is Castor but caster comes first in right ascension and it's higher up in declination. I think it, I think is the rule they're applying. I might, might have that. I may be oversimplifying it, but it's something, it's something like that anyway, but it was, that, that is interesting. And, and really to my, to my eye, I, I view them both to be similar magnitudes. Uh, I wouldn't say one is brighter than the other. Um, I'm also not a variable star observer, so I'm not great at, you know, judging magnitude, but they are very yeah. close. Yeah, they are very, very close. Anyway, just sort of one of those, uh, bits of esoterica. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> now, in Greek mythology, and uh, so here on the here on the left that, that I'm that I'm showing you, Shane, is a, is a is a set of constellations. I think this is from um, Persian astronomer Al Sufi's. Um, I think it's a 964 AD Book of Fixed Stars, um, and and here we see the the twins uh, gem of Gemini. Um, and in Greek mythology, they were Castor and Pollux. So the easiest way to locate um, the constellations is to find those two brightest stars. And you just come eastward from the V of Taurus. So we talked about following the northern horn up to Origa. Well, this one, you're going to follow the southern horn. And then you kind of just dog leg down uh, to, the, to the southeast uh, a little bit. And you'll get to... Uh, you could do Castor and Pollux. Um, another way, apparently, I've never done this, is to draw a line sort of mentally um, from the Pleiades um, to uh, the brightest star in Leo, which is Regulus or Regulus, depending on how you want to say it. Uh, and in doing so, uh, basically halfway in between, um, you're going to run into Castor and Pollux, right? But but I actually find because of the winter circle, I think the winter circle really is the is the key um, to learning those bright stars and you sort of start at, at the, at the stars and kind of work your way around and learn that winter circle, um, which we've talked about in the past. And then because Castor and Pollux are part of that winter circle, you're, you're going to be able to, uh, to learn this set of constellations. Yeah. Yeah. And I find Castor and Pollux, um, just at where they are in the sky, like they're so dominant as the bright stars there that Again, once you identify them, you'll always be able to, like when you see them for the first time, you'll always be able to identify them. Yeah. Yeah. So um, let's just see. I just want to look something up really, really quick here. I'm just looking. I've got three uh, open clusters uh, up here. And Shane, have, have you, you've observed M35 before, right? Yes. Yeah. And NGC 2158. I don't know. I don't think I've looked at IC two one five seven though. But anyway, uh, yes, for sure thirty five. Yeah. So I'm looking. I'm trying to look up, but I put in two one four eight. I meant to put them two one five eight because that is uh, such a tight cluster. I was like, is that an open cluster? Is it a globular? But I have looked at it uh, quite a few times. I, I couldn't figure out if it was like a loose globular or an open cluster. It looks like it's cataloged as, as an open cluster. But yeah, I have looked at at all three of these and they, they tend to stand out a little bit better in the, uh, in the telescope than, and, and as well uh, in larger binoculars than they do like on the image here like this. But for sure, uh, M35, you get to by... Um, 
coming down the body of Castor, sort of like that stick figure, and then eventually get out to his foot. And uh, sort of north of, of that uh, left foot, I guess it would be, uh, or the top foot, the northernmost foot, is the really bright open cluster M35. And then kind of as you, as you swing your telescope to that, in fact, from a dark site, you can see M35. It's like a little fuzzy spot there. Yep, yep. And then uh, through your, your telescope, once you put a little bit of power in there, uh, you're going to see that there's, there's a bright region, just a, just a smidge to the, uh, to the west. And then just a little bit further than that same distance is uh, IC2157. So we have M35, NGC2158, and then IC2157. This sort of progressively, it's kind of neat because you have M35, which was one of the brightest open clusters in the nighttime sky, you can see it with your eye, to uh, like a pretty good uh, NGC open cluster, um, which, which, you know, is, is going to appear in a, in a good binocular, like a, like a 70 millimeter binocular should be able to pick it up pretty easy. Maybe a smaller binocular from, from dark sites. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, IC2157, uh, which is an index catalog. So you sort of have this, this nice representation of different open clusters, um, from, uh, from sort of different catalogs, sort of different catalogs, because the IC is just an extension of the, of the NGC and all Messies are, are also contained in the NGC. But uh, anyhow, I didn't know if you have anything to add about these three clusters. No, no, you've covered it all really well. Mm. I've, I've spent a long time observing, like I haven't observed them recently, but I've certainly observed these um, to, to my satisfaction. I'll put it that way. So I, I think I observed them like probably a uh, hundred times over a few years. So. Oh, wow. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I really like those. So there's, there's lots of, you know, one of the things with, with doing these uh, constellations, I think it's neat to touch on different, uh, different constellations. I originally thought we should just do one. And then I, when I do my classes, I try to give people like an overview and uh, like an overview of the constellation, then a few things that they, they can see in there. And I try not to uh, push the envelope too much. So kind of this year, as, as we're going through them, I'm really taking, you know, I'm really kind of hitting people with the low hanging fruit just to kind of give people an introduction. Um, and I know that there's people out there that are more experienced observers and astro imagers and such, but I'm kind of thinking that uh, as we progress through this over, over the coming years, that we can kind of dig, dig a little deeper, um, you know, as we go forward. But Shane, sort of speaking of digging a little deeper, are there any... Uh, are there any uh, double stars or anything like that that you want to draw people's attention to in the constellation of Gemini, the twins? Yeah. Yeah. So actually I, I just talked about them in our previous episode, uh, but I'll mention them here because, uh, you know, probably makes more sense to include them in this episode. Um, there's two that I'll draw attention to. The first one is HD 51502. Um, let's see here. Do I have their components. Oh, gee, I don't think I have the magnitude for their components offhand. Um, the separation, do I have that at least on this chart? Hmm. I don't think that it lists that. Um, anyway, this, um, these two here. Uh, Sounds like you're just using your observing chart there from last night. Yeah, I am. And yeah. it, it's kind of light on detail. I'm just going to quick <laughs> Yeah. And that's, and that's fine. But I mean, that's, that's kind of what we're doing here uh, with our podcast is we're actually using uh, our materials, like the materials that, uh, that we use uh, either in the classes that, that we volunteer to teach uh, and the stuff that we use uh, in the field. So as doing this, it, it does help to kind of improve our own, um, our own astronomical knowledge, as well as our own, our own um, sort of endeavors and our own projects that, that we're working on uh, under the sky. So yeah, were you able to find that information there, Shane? No, but I'll, I'll just sort of restate my That's observation. Fine. So yeah, I'll restate HD, your observations. That's fine. Yeah. HD 51502 is one of the coolest ones, uh, like multiple star systems that I've seen because it forms a triangle and it's so distinct. Um, like if you're so just panning. It, where's it located? So um, kind of looking at is, the pattern here. So it's, um, I guess it would be southwest of Elhina. Um, you know, I think, I think that's the Epsilon star below Elhina, Elhina that uh, I use to uh, begin my 
my pan. Okay, um, so so Alhina looks like it's gamma uh, Gemini, uh, which is the left foot of the Pollux stick figure. Yes. Yes. Okay. So that's so, that's where we are, folks. Yeah. So it this double is located, I guess, on the right leg of the left figure. Um, okay. So, yeah, it's kind of. What's do I have the RA? Yeah. So here we go. RA on this is six five eight, and the declination is fourteen fourteen. Um, yeah. Okay. Anyway, so, wonderful, so just wonderful sort of in the middle. Yeah, wonderful uh, uh, multiple star system. And then the other one is uh, Mekbuda, which is in the other leg uh, between Elhina and Wasat. And um, it, it's, there's quite a bit of separation there. There's two stars. And one, one is certainly brighter than the other. And I felt like there's a little bit of color in there too, maybe a little hmm. bit of orange in the primary. Um, so a pretty easy, uh, both are very easy to split. Um, and I think, I think even modest binoculars, uh, would show them both quite well. Good. Sounds good. Cool. Yeah. Anything else to add there? That is all. Excellent. So let us move along to cancer, the crab. So doing these is, is a little bit different. So when I, when I do my, um, constellations, for, for the handbook, I, I sort of pick one every year. I'm not sure what I'm going to do this year or not, but when I pick one, um, or I, I sort of should say when we pick one, because I do them with uh, Randall, um, we, we really do a deep dive. And the difference between doing these constellations, we were doing them in this podcast, which makes it a little bit, um, po- well, it makes it possible for us to do them is when Randall and I do those, we spend like two to three weeks um, like creating um, that piece of work, which includes um, observations and sketches and a lot of historical research and that sort of thing. And when you and I do these, we kind of, oh, we're going to do this. All right. And then we just sort of sort of use the notes that I, that I have quickly available to me and you use the notes that you have quickly available to you. And then we, we put it together uh, for folks, which is kind of more like how our, how our observing is, is going right now in these. But, uh, but I'll tell you, the constellation cancer or the symbol for cancer as well looks like an upside down um, lambda pattern, eh? Anyway. Yeah. And, and that symbol is actually the pattern of the constellation. If you look closely. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, that it's, is true. It's kind of neat like that. So sometimes you'll actually see sort of this, this uh, I, I don't know if I'm, I'm making the right analogy here, but it looks like an upside down lambda pattern. If you actually go back to... Uh, uh, to the pattern of of Gemini, there you can see that uh, Alhina is uh, is a lambda, but I guess maybe it's the uh, maybe like the delta pattern or something like that. Anyway, I'm not going to get too far into it, but um, let's see. So it's wh- whereas Gemini has the two bright stars, and Auriga has that one bright star, and a lot of other bright stars in the Milky Way going through. Once once we get into Cancer, we're kind of getting off Milky Way, so there's not. Um, as much uh, Milky Way star patterns in there, but it's got these two bright open clusters, M44 and M67 uh, are in there. So, and in fact, um, you know, that that M44 cluster is almost like what I think about when I think about uh, Cancer the Crab. So how do you find it? Well, it's pretty easy. You find Castor and Pollux and they basically point almost rate at M44 by about uh, 20 degrees. I think that's, that's about the distance there. But uh, anyhow, M44 is, is just a super bright cluster, but the pattern of stars um, around Cancer is kind of faint. So from a city, you're, you're going to struggle to see it. So you're going to need your wide angle binoculars. So where does the crab come from? So in Egyptian records, uh, dating back to around 2000 BC, or BCE as we say now, um, before the Common Era, it, uh, it was described as a scarab crab, uh, which was a sacred emblem of immortality, often seen on Egyptian tombs and, uh, and those, kind of, uh, those kind of places. And in uh, sort of uh, early Babylonia, uh, the constellation, um, was known in the Malapin as uh, Mal Al Lil, 
which is, uh, well, Molal is just the beginning of the Molap and then sort of just be lull, uh, a name that can refer to both uh, a crab and a snapping uh, turtle. So I actually have, have drawn this. Um, it's a really cool pattern of stars and then punctuated uh, by M44. But we have, uh, and in fact, like, so, so Shane, I'm not sure if you can see, I think, I think the image on the top right is, is one of my sketches or something like that. I think I've combined my sketch with a, with an image or something to, to that nature. I could be wrong on that, but I do have quite a few sketches of the whole constellation and, and the pattern of stars. Um, but that, that cluster M44 right at the center of cancer is Latin for the manger um, or M44, also known as Preacep. If I'm saying that right, or Preacepi, uh, and NGC two six three two. It's also known as Colander one eighty nine. So it has all these different names, otherwise known as just the Beehive Cluster, or M forty four Preacepi. Those are the most common ones, and uh, it's super bright and easy to see. It's a beautiful binocular cluster, and it's one of the nearest open clusters to the solar system, and it contains uh, a larger population. Um, of stars, uh, you know, than, than most other nearby clusters. So it's it's not only close, it also has a lot of stars in it. And under dark skies, um, the whole area looks nebulous. And it's been known since, you know, prehistory. So when they were first uh, writing up star catalogs, like uh, like when, when Ptolemy was putting together his Alma Jest, um, he called it the nebulous mass in the breast of cancer. So it, uh, you know, it, it was definitely known and seen uh, since, uh, since prehistoric times. And uh, also, this was the first of the deep sky objects that Galileo pointed his telescope at. And this is what he described in the Starry Messenger, which actually went on to inspire all kinds of people to look at the nighttime sky, um, from Pirsec to Hordierna. Um, and, you know, led to the discovery of like the uh, M42 nebula, by others led to the discovery of uh, those those clusters in Auriga and uh, all kinds of different things in the nighttime sky. So Shane, quick quiz. How many deep sky objects did Galileo discover? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> One? Ten? He's, I don't know. He's credited with no, no deep sky object discoveries. Okay, okay. So he, he only went and looked at the stuff that was already in uh, Ptolemy's Almagest, which was uh -huh. kind of known as, as sort of fuzzy objects. And uh, sort of his, his big contribution to the deep sky business was that uh, he, he discovered that uh, like Preacept, this fuzzy thing in cancer was uh, made out of all these stars, uh, which, is, which is super important. But, uh, but he didn't discover it. No, it was already known. It's uh, in Cancer. It's got this little grouping of stars. Sort of, if you if you look closer, it's got these four stars right in the center of it, and then kind of in the center of those four stars is where M forty four resides, and it's got this pattern. So um, this image that I'm showing you on the right is is again, and I do love these images. Um, the, this the set of images here. Um, we've got two patterns of the crab. Uh, they both look very different. So the one on the left is from Al-Sufi's 964 AD uh, Book of Fixed Star. Al-Sufi was a Persian astronomer uh, and probably one of the best uh, naked eye visual astronomers uh, of all time. And so um, he's, he's drawing a crab that would have been uh, something familiar to him in his region. Um, and then as such, that, that pattern of four stars in the middle. And then uh, you can see he's drawn this really neat, uh, and by neat, I mean accurately, a dot, dot, dot. You see those dots, it forms like a stretched out pentagon pattern. Yeah, yeah. And so he's sort of one of the original creators of that dotted pattern, which is uh, denoting uh, a nebula on a star chart. And you actually can see that to this day. You know, if you if you go and buy like a copy of Sky and Telescope at the store, it'll have like this little pattern of, of dotted circles or, or whatever. So I, I think that... Uh, you know, that's sort of an interesting thing in itself, but he's just denoting that there's a nebulous mass. And then on the flip side here, we have um, over in, uh, over in Cancer, uh, the crab as, as pictured in uh, Bayer's Urinometria 1603, 
you can actually see that he has these four stars. They're drawn a little bit differently, um, but it's sort of unmistakable. This is the same region that's, that's being referred to. And uh, in the center, there's, there's this C, and that C is a faded star, right? And I've talked about these faded stars of Bayer's Uranometria 1603 before. And now in 1603, um, perhaps for, for unknown reasons, Bayer was being a little bit uh, conscious about, about the fact that maybe he shouldn't be drawing too much attention to strain things in the nighttime sky. And so he, uh, he was a bit cryptic in his noting of deep sky objects. So um, he mm -hmm. noted it as just this, this fuzzy spot. And of course, in 1603, this is just before telescopes are being pointed at the nighttime sky. Galileo not looking at this until about uh, half a dozen years later. Very interesting. Yeah. And there we have uh, M67. This is uh, the last thing I'm going to, I'm going to talk about. I'm getting a, a great quick succession of, uh, of text messages from Shane telling me to hurry up and rush along that I'm talking too much. So, so I'm just going <laughs> to kind of leave it, leave it at this. So sort of in the, in the bottom part of the constellation, we have this, this other, uh, this other cluster called M67, which, which honestly would be a, a more exciting cluster if M44 wasn't so spectacular just For a little sure. bit further, further to the north. So I'm just going to draw people's uh, attention to that, which is in the the bottom, the southern, uh, southeastern portion uh, of Cancer. And I'm just going to say that that's a great object to look at too. So Shane, do we have any double stars to look at in Cancer? Yeah, I will reference. Uh, let's see here. I think maybe just one. Um, and this is another uh, decent test of again optics and observation uh, abilities. It's uh, Struve 1177. Now, the, the two stars are actually quite close in magnitude. Uh, primary 6.7 and secondary 7.4. Um, but the separation is 3.5. So they're quite close. And you'll likely have to use some magnification uh, to get that split. Um, and probably, you know, seeing will impact this a little bit too. If, if the seeing is poor, uh, the, these... Uh, stars that are closer together become more difficult to separate. So Struve 1177. Sounds good. Anything else to add on this? Our, our very brief tour of uh, Origa, Gemini, and Cancer the Crab. Yeah. Uh, if anyone is interested in the show notes for this, again, there'll be a lot of images that Chris uh, referenced throughout this. Uh, go to actualastronomy.com. We'll have it posted there. All right. Well, thanks so much, Shane. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>